Our Father, as we take a few moments to look in detail at your word, we're so grateful that we possess the word of God and that we're able to study it and learn and to grow. And Father, I pray that you will give us the in-depth desire to understand the Word of God and to make it a part of our very being. I thank you that you are so faithful and this keeps being revealed as we study these passages of Scripture of the faithfulness of God. And Lord, we recognize that we in ourselves, in our own flesh, are very unfaithful and we need the Spirit of God to uh, build faithfulness into us. And so we pray that as we study about Israel and Moses and the work that you did through that man, that we will learn faith in our own hearts and faith in our everyday actions and activities as we uh, respond to the world and, and those around us. Father, I pray that as your word is proclaimed this morning throughout uh, the church and Sunday school, that you will be present and empowering according to your good divine plan. In Jesus' name, amen. 14th chapter of Numbers, 14th chapter of Numbers. I'd like to begin reading at verse 13, Numbers 14, 13. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for by thy strength thou didst bring up this people from their midst, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that thou, O Lord, art in the midst of this people, for thou, O Lord, art seen eye to eye while thy cloud stands over them. And thou dost go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now if thou dost slay this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of thy fame will say, Because the Lord could not bring this people into the land which he had promised them by an oath, therefore he slaughtered them in the wilderness. But now I pray, let the power of the Lord be great, just as thou hast declared. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people, according to the greatness of thy loving kindness, just as thou also hast forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. As we saw last week in the beginning part of the chapter, the Israelites, as they were camped at Kadesh Barnea, sent spies into the land, and, and we have heard, of course, messages and lessons about the spies for a long time. But the, the word that was brought back, of course, was that, yes, the, the, the land is bountiful. It, it's, it flows with milk and honey, as it were. But there are giants in the land and great walled cities and mighty armies. It's too great for us. We cannot conquer it, which was, of course, true. They could not conquer the land in their own strength. But God had not ordained them to conquer the land in their own strength. God had ordained them to take the land in His strength. He would lead them. He would guide them. He would do for them the great miracles that He had already demonstrated in Egypt and in the wilderness thus far. And yet they chose not to listen to the voices of Joshua and Caleb, the two spies of the twelve, who gave a good report, but rather to listen to the ten who gave an evil report. And as we began this chapter last week, 
We read the verse at the beginning which says, Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. What we assume, of course, from that is that they wept because they had been brought to this place and it was an impossible situation. Why did God not just leave us in Egypt? There may have been a few who wept, maybe even Moses and Joshua and Caleb, because of the rebellion of the people. But they wept that night and they refused to go into the land. And so God proposed to Moses that uh, Moses step aside and God will just wipe them all out and God will start all over again with Moses. But Moses then prays this intercessory prayer that we have read here in the past few minutes. Verses 13 to 16 of this passage of Scripture reveals a, that Moses had a wonderful understanding of the central truth of history, which is the glory of God. That is the central pivotal point of history, the glory of God. We are to live to the glory of God. Christ was sent into the world to the glory of God. The whole world was created as a demonstration of the glory of God. And so Moses highlights that here as he prays to God on behalf of his people. He knew that God had raised up Israel as a witness, to be a witness to the world in which they lived at that time, to be a witness to Egypt, to be a witness to the Canaanites and all of the people in the lands surrounding what would become Israel. That was their purpose. They were to be a witness. They were to proclaim the truth, even as the church is to proclaim the truth today in this heathen world. Let me read a couple of passages from Isaiah that highlight this. In the 46th chapter of Isaiah, we read one of the many statements that Isaiah makes that are rather similar to this well, which God makes through Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 46, beginning at verse 5, uh, we read this rather interesting um, statement from God. To whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me, that we should be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale, hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god, and they bow down, and indeed they worship it. They lift it upon the shoulder and carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. It does not move from its place. Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver them or him from his distress. I mean, I, in this you see, or you can hear, I think, at least two tones, uh, the tone of God, which is one of, of, of sadness that people should should choose such a folly, but also a, a bit of, um, what shall I say here, mocking in a way that, that God is saying. It's sort of like an Elijah stood on top of Mount Carmel and said, well, you know, your God isn't answering. Maybe he's on a trip or, or maybe he's in the latrine. I mean, you know, Elijah, the man of God, knew where the truth rested. And, and so does God here, of course. And, you know, they, they make this god of gold and they, out of the gold they got out of their own purse. And they stick it on a shelf where it can't move and it can't talk, but they worship it. You know, the, the folly is, is ridiculous here and 
And, and that is, of course, the witness of the true and the living God, the God who was able to overcome all of the gods of Egypt. And we talked about that when we talked about the Exodus and the various gods that the Egyptians worshipped and how God dealt with each one of those Kites, the, the Amorites, the Canaanites of various varieties, and, and the Hivites and so forth that, that populate this land. And the God of Israel will demonstrate his, his superiority to their gods through Israel. But, of course, this requires Israel to be faithful. There's another passage. It's not on your outline here, but it, it probably is a familiar one to you. Go back a couple of uh, three chapters in Isaiah to 43rd chapter of Isaiah, where God makes it a little more specific exactly what his uh, people were to do. Beginning at verse 8 of Isaiah 43, Bring out the people who are blind, even though they have eyes, and deaf, even though they have ears. All the nations have gathered together in order that the peoples may be assembled. Who among them, who among them can declare this and proclaim to us the former things? Let them present their witnesses that they may be justified, or let them hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, in order that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord. There is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there is, was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity I am he, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act. And who can reverse it? And that was to be the purpose of Israel in this world, to demonstrate the reality of the sovereign, true God, and to prove that all the other people have ears, but they cannot hear. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They worship gods that are not. Because as God says in, in this passage, uh, before me there was no God formed, and after me there will be none. There is only one God. And Israel was to be a witness to that God and, and to his reality and to his power. I mean, just as allu alluded to a minute ago, the uh, prophets of Baal yelled and screamed and cut themselves and, and performed for hours and, and Baal couldn't answer because Baal doesn't exist. But then God demonstrated his truth after a simple prayer of a man of God. And that's what Israel was to be about. And so Moses is saying here, to God, if you wipe out Israel without taking them into the land, the pagan nations around, even Egypt, will believe that really Yahweh is no greater than their own gods. Because they know their gods supposedly can do some things, but they admit there are things their gods can't do. I mean, the Egyptians knew that none of their gods was omnipotent. Uh, they knew that uh, their, their gods all had limited authority. And it was common amongst the people in those days to believe that their gods were nationally associated or tribally associated. That this was their god, but he wasn't the god of anybody else. He was the god of this land, but not the god of any other land. But Israel was to demonstrate that there was a sovereign god over the entire earth and all the peoples of the earth, and that he alone was God. 
And so Moses is saying to God here, if you wipe out Israel, then all these people who will have heard of the testimony of what you did in Egypt will say, aha, really, he is no better than our gods. He couldn't do it. He couldn't take him into the land. Now, we know God is not, I mean, Moses is not telling God anything that God doesn't know and that God doesn't understand. But what Moses is doing here is demonstrated God, demonstrating God-given wisdom and understanding. He sees the bottom line. And that's one of the primary purposes for you and for me studying this word so that we can see the bottom line too and not be confused by all the winds of doctrine that float around, you know, today. You know, people come along and and they've been a Christian for a while, but somebody comes along who's a really fine Mormon, you know, and, and they dress neatly and they act nice and they have a wonderful family and all of this, and, and you begin to wonder, well, you know, maybe that's okay, maybe that's even good. And people kind of get suckered over in, into a false religion. Why? Because they don't know the bottom line. They, they don't know the foundation of their faith. And that needs to be our goal each of us individually, and, and the church corporately, to, to understand the bottom line of faith and, and to know that there is no God but the God of the Bible, and there is no understanding of Him outside of this book and what He proclaims, of course, in Romans, uh, what we can see of Him in creation. There is no other book. <laughs> there aren't any lost Gospels that are true. There aren't any other additional Gospels, you know, that have been written by somebody who found some golden plate someplace which were interpreted by some angel who sits on top of some temple someplace. All of that is human addition, human invention. All of it. And, and those who even within evangelical circles, and there are in evangelical circles in certain groups, people who will proclaim, will proclaim that there are, is other revelation that can come to you other than this revelation. That is very dangerous ground to walk on because the Bible is pretty strong about that. There is no other revelation. It's all here. It's all here. And so Moses has come to this understanding and, and the heart of his prayer is found in verses 17 to 19 where he, he says, Pray and let the power of the Lord be great. He's asking God to demonstrate His power and demonstrate His, his authority and, and let the people know who you are and what you are. And he pled with God to reveal His greatness by doing what? Demonstrating His mercy. Now, other gods from time to time, imp empowered, of course, by, by Satan, have demonstrated some little uh, flash of some kind of power, you know, they've struck somebody dead or something like that. But there is no God other than the true God who can demonstrate mercy. Mercy is unique to God, the Father, and Jesus Christ, and the Spirit of the living God. Totally unique. Satan is a vile, vicious being who knows no mercy, and he empowers all the other gods of this world. Therefore, they cannot demonstrate true mercy. They cannot demonstrate true mercy. You read the Koran, for example. And, and you read in there, and there are, the word mercy does show up in the Quran. But as you read the context of the statement, you discover uh, it's not the mercy you know here. You know, it, it's a pleading that God won't capriciously destroy, which is the God of the Quran. 
but this kind of mercy based on the deep-seated character and nature of God is true only of the, of the true and living God of the Bible. Now Moses, in all of his praying here, is inspired by God himself. This is not little old Moses wrestling with the sovereign God trying to get him to change his mind. It is God working through Moses. God has inspired Moses. And Moses quotes God's very words back to him, words which God had spoken to Moses several months before on Mount Sinai. You remember the golden calf incident. And you remember that, God, that Moses went before God to plead again for Israel to intercede again for Israel. And God said, Moses, come back up the mountain. And Moses went back up the mountain. And God showed him a measure of his glory. And God hid him in the cleft of the rock. And God gave him the promise that Moses is quoting back to him here in verse 18, where he says, The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generations. He has exactly quoted the words of God that God gave to him on the top of Mount Sinai. So he's interceding on behalf of Israel with God's own words. And so Moses asks God, therefore, on the basis of this statement which you gave to me, I am asking you to forgive and pardon this people, even though they have offended you these 10 times in the past 16 months. Now, let me just emphasize here, this shows some kind of faith on the part of Moses. Now, I think most of us, when we get that kind of a situation, we'd basically say, I'm not going to go to God and ask him for this. I mean, you have blown it so many times. There's no way. But Moses demonstrates his faith in the character and nature of God and the mercy of God by will, be, being willing to again intercede for them although they have blatantly rejected the will of God. I mean, this is not because they were fooled. You know, some could argue that they were a little bit fooled by the golden calf incident. And it was natural for them to rebel when, you know, there wasn't any water around that they could see and they were tired of eating manna. But now, what is, what, what is excuse do they have? They have said, this is what God has said. We will not do it. And yet Moses dares to go before God and to intercede for Israel. In, in my understanding of Scripture, this has got to make Moses the greatest human intercessor of all history. There have been great intercessors. Certainly Paul was a great intercessor. And and Daniel was an intercessor, and Ezra was an intercessor, but, but Moses has got to be, in my opinion anyway, the top of the pyramid of, of intercessors of all time. Now, of course, his intercession falls far short of that of Christ, of whom we're told in Hebrews that he ever lives to make intercession for us. Jesus is constantly interceding for us before the Father. But Moses, in his patience and humility, certainly is without human peer. Let me read you the words of commentator Ronald Allen. He makes this following observation. Moses knew God intimately. He knew him as a consuming fire, but he also knew his warm embrace. We tend to focus on the flashes of God's wrath, 
Moses reminds us that while the wrath of God is real, it is long delayed. The most remarkable thing about the wrath of God is how much provocation he tolerates before he finally acts in righteous judgment. I suspect, this is the commentator making this statement, I suspect that there are occasions when we have all wished that God would zap this evil or reach out and destroy that evil. But the fact that he has not is a loving reminder that he may extend his patience to us as well. That he may ex extend his patience to us as well. I, I don't know how you feel about that, but every day I'm grateful for the mercy of God. Numbers 14, verse 20. So the Lord said, this, this is it now in response to Moses' intercession. So the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word. But indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurn me see it, but my servant Caleb, because he has had a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he entered, and his descendants will take possession of it. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites live in the valleys. Turn tomorrow and set out to the wilderness by way of the Red Sea. Can you imagine Moses hearing those words from God? Go back into the wilderness, Moses. Take him back into the wilderness. <laughs> I, I don't think Moses was really delighted by that. I don't think he was. But he was faithful. You and I might not always be delighted by what God asks us to do, but we must be faithful. Because as if you were again, uh, any of you were listening to uh, Dr. Lutzer this morning, he was saying, <laughs> there is no place in this life where you will find greater joy and comfort and security than in the midst of God's will, no matter what it is. No matter what it is. Well, Moses prayed according to the word and will of God. And that's how you pray. That's how we become intercessors. We pray according to the word and will of God. And God heard and God pardoned Israel. Let me read a couple of verses from 1 John that kind of highlight this. Chapter 5, verse 14 and this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked of him. Again, that's foundation of intercessory prayer. Finding what it is God wants us to pray for. Because when we pray as intercessors, we can only pray in God's spirit and in God's strength. We cannot intercede in our own strength. Moses was not able to intercede before God for Israel in his own strength because he was a human being. I mean, just 
Put yourself in his, hand, in, your, in, in his sandals and don't put any halo around his head. He was as we are, flesh and blood, a man with fears and doubts. Uh, unfortunately, we sometimes get our thinking saturated with these old medieval paintings we have these people standing around piously with halos over their head looking so holy. You know, St. Joseph or St. Mary or whatever saint it might be. And we become infused with this idea that there are people historically that have somehow been on a different plane from the rest of us. And, and that's not true. As James tells us, even speaking of Elijah, that he was a man with like passions as we are. Now, it's true. Moses, through the experiences that he had, had come to a a place of faith that uh, maybe many of us have not yet arrived. But nevertheless, he, he was no different in the general makeup of, of his being. And so Moses' ability to intercede was not based upon him being some kind of a super spiritual person that God had to listen to because Moses commanded God's attention. No. It's because God's Spirit spoke through him. God interceded through Moses. Well, one of the prayers that, that we pray is that God will make us channels through whom he can bless others. And that's what we're to be in this life, is a channel through whom God works to touch other lives. Now, God doesn't want to bless us, so we just kind of collect all this blessing here, you know, a big old pile of blessing or a pool of blessing. God wants us to overflow in, into others' lives. And, and the primary way, the most important way by which we do that is by intercessory prayer, by praying for each other in, in the needs that each has. And that is, of course, exactly what Moses has done here. You know, notice Moses doesn't say, well, you know, some of the Israelites have a bad attitude. God fixed their attitude. Um, some of them have, uh, you know, they, they got sore feet, heal their sore feet. No, he just says, God, have mercy on these wicked people. God then promised that one day the whole world will be filled with His glory. There will be a day when neither Israel nor the church will demote God by disobedience. There will be a day when the whole world will be filled with the glory of God, the undiminished, untarnished glory of God. And that day, I think, is probably the same day that is referred to in many of the um, prophetic writings as the day of the Lord. The day in the New Testament, many of us would interpret possibly as the day when Christ will return in His glory and in His power. The psalmist prayed for this. In Psalm 72, we have an example of that. It is the song or the psalm of Solomon, but it seems to be quoting the prayers of his father, David. Uh, in Psalm 72, beginning at verse 17, May his name endure forever. May his name increase as long as the sun shines. And let men bless themselves by him and let all the nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders, and blessed be his glorious name forever, and may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. I'm sure it is for you as it is for me that every time I sit down, watch the news, or read the newspaper, I long for the day when the earth will be filled with the glory of God. 
because right now it is filled with crud from one end to the other. And all you read about is one violent act after another and one person betraying another and one department of the government violating this and another one violating that. And you just look at this and you wonder, when's it all going to end? Well, it will end one day. And the earth will be filled with the glory of God. And nobody will say, well, it all happened by chance. Right. Mm -hmm. As God stands in his majesty, there will be no doubt. So what does God do here? Well, as we read in the passage, God said to Moses, by your word, I have forgiven. I have pardoned the people. God forgave the Israelites for their sin of disobedience and their sin of disbelief. Almost always disobedience is based on disbelief. Because if we really believe, we usually will really obey. But if we don't obey, it's probably because we don't believe. And so it was for Israel. They did not believe they could take the land even in God's strength. Therefore, they would not obey. And to us, we look at that and we say, how can that be? When they saw what God did for them over and over again those ten times. Well, all we have to do is look in the mirror and kind of reflect over our own lives and we can understand exactly why they could do that. God forgave them, but they still would reap what they had <coughs> sown. They had tried God's patience these ten times in the 16 months that preceded this event, and therefore they will not see the promised land. They will not see the promised land. Only their children would enter the land, with the exception of two of the older generation. Those two, of course, would be Caleb and Joshua. Caleb and Joshua, the two who had brought a good report and said that this means we can take the land. God will give us the land. They alone stood against the evil of their, of their fellow spies. They alone said, no, we can't do it. Don't believe these ten. We can do it. And they almost were stoned for their faithfulness. They proclaimed the faithfulness of God against all odds. And that's beginning to become more and more the situation of the world today where we, if we proclaim the faith of God, we're doing it against all odds. In verse 24, we have that, that beautiful testimony. <laughs> Would that could be our tombstone. But my servant Caleb, he has had a different spirit and has followed me fully. I will bring into the land. No, I, I goofed that one up somehow. Let's start over again. But my servant Caleb, because he has had a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he entered and his descendants shall take possession of it. He had a different spirit. He had a different spirit. This doesn't mean he was an alien, you know, or something of that sort. It simply means that he had a spirit of faith and obedience. His spirit was in accord with God's spirit, and God worked through him to demonstrate what faithfulness really meant. And his life was in stark contrast to the other ten spies. And we won't get to it today, but if you read on in the, in, into later in this chapter, you discover that the other ten spies will be struck dead by a plague by God. But not Caleb. Because God said, 
he has followed me fully. Now, what does that mean? I don't know how many of you have read on through <clears throat> uh, Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, but uh, when you do that, you discover that every once in a while it comes across, you come across a king, and it says, this king did what was right in the eyes of God. And you think, wow, what kind of a guy was that? And we're told David was one of those kind, and then we suddenly have to start modifying what we think doing right in the eyes of God means. And we have to understand that about Caleb too. Caleb was not some kind of a saintly robot, you know, that God just programmed in and everything he did was holy and righteous and good. No, he was a human being. He probably thought some bad thoughts and said some things that were unkind, and he probably did some things that weren't exactly right. He was a redeemed sinner, just as you and I, I trust, are redeemed. Even though we all are sinners, I trust we all are redeemed. And, and he had his faults, and he had his failures, just as we have. But his, and, and this is where it came down to the truth of the matter. But his heart's desire was to faithfully serve his God. That was his heart's desire. And again, talking about bottom lines, that's where it's at for you and for me individually in our walk with God, is that our heart's desire is to faithfully serve him. That is the bottom line. We may not always do it correctly. We may mess up here and there. We may take off on a little rabbit trail for a while, but the basic desire of our heart is to serve God faithfully, is to do his will. That really is the ultimate defining factor of who is a Christian. I mean, a real Christian. One who is kept until that last day, as Paul would say. Uh, one who has walked with God throughout his or her life. That is the person who, in the depths of his or her heart, desires to do the will of God above, above all else, even though we may imperfectly uh, follow that desire. Paul spends a whole chapter in the seventh chapter of Romans, as you know, telling us how Paul said, this is what I want to do, but this is what I end up doing. And what I don't want to do, this is what I do. But then, of course, in the eighth chapter, he talks about how you know, we can begin in our daily walk with God to, to have victory over that dichotomy that exists, that dualism that exists in our lives. It will never be perfect in this life even until our dying day. Can you imagine you're on your deathbed and you have a bad thought? You know, that can easily happen. Easily. We can say, oh, God, why are you doing this to me? I want to live to see my grandchildren or my great-grandchildren or whatever else. And, you know, but, but God doesn't reject us over that because he knows that we are but clay, but dirt. And it's as his spirit lives through us that we are perfected. And so it was of Caleb. Caleb's heart's desire was to do God's will. Uh, he was no perfect individual. I mean, he probably yelled at his wife from time to time, you know. He may even have kept, kicked a dog. I don't know. But his basic heart's desire was to do God's will. And so he was held up as an example. What, what, you know, understanding this is really important to us because if we feel like God holds up examples to us that are impossible to attain to, then it's discouraging. We'll never even try. If I say, I can't become like St. Beatrice or St. whatever, you know, I won't even try. I'm, I'm just going to muck around down here. But, but if we understand that the people whom God holds up are people like you and I are, 
and that as we walk with God in faith and learn how to become intercessors and learn how to absorb the Word of God and make it a part of how we live, then, then we can become people like that too. And we can become examples to others in the congregation that, that they will you know, seek to follow, seek to emulate. I want to be a, a man or a woman of prayer as he or she is. I want to become a person who, who is honest and has integrity as he or she has, you know, whatever these characteristics may be. My prayer is that this could be said of me, and I, I would pray that this could be said of all of us. As it was said of Caleb, he followed me fully. What better epitaph could you have on your tombstone? Followed he, she, followed me fully. I can't think of a better one. Unfortunately, the 25th verse is a very, very sad verse in light of the 24th verse. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites live in the valley, in the valleys, turned tomorrow and set out into the wilderness by way of the Red Sea. They had left Sinai with the goal of entering Canaan. Now, you and I have all been to high school or college, and you may have been to a pep rally. And the cheerleaders are out there getting everybody all revved up. We're going to go out there and we're going to clean the clock of that other team. You know, we're just really going to do it. And that's kind of what Mount Sinai experience was. Israel was revved up. They were given the, the, um, the tabernacle and the whole worship program was set up and the priests were established and installed and everything was ready to go and they started marching. And their goal was to enter the promised land and live in peace and freedom under the reign of Yahweh. As the scripture will say, and every man sat under his, vin, you know, under his vine, the shade of his vine, and you know, lived in peace. But because of their unbelief and their rebellion, they missed the window of opportunity. God would have enabled them to drive out the Amalekites and the Canaanites. I mean, none of those ites scared God. It didn't matter how tall their walls were, how giant their men were, how many men they had in their army, or how much armor they had, or spears, or bows, or anything else. God was not really intimidated by any of it. Now, later on, the greatest and mightiest power of the world would come along by the name of Assyria, and, and the great king of the Assyrians, Sennacherib, would come up before the walls of Jerusalem, and God would wipe up the whole army overnight without a single soldier on the Israelite side fighting. You know, 185,000 men die overnight for no reason at all that can be easily ascertained is a bit of a shattering experience for a mighty empire and should be a, a really encouraging experience for the people of God as it was for Hezekiah the king. God will defend his glory. God will defend his name. And, and you may remember that one of the reasons God did what he did was that Hezekiah, uh, Sennacherib had sent a, a message basically saying, I'm going to take your God and carry him away in a cage just like I have all the other gods. And Hezekiah, rather than going, <laughs> what am I going to do? He takes the letter in before God in the temple and says, God, what do you think of this letter? You know, well, that was the best thing he could have done. You know, that, that's a form of intercession. He wasn't exactly interceding for the Assyrians. <laughs> I think he was interceding against the Assyrians. And it worked. And God wiped out the entire army in one evening. God could have wiped out the Amalekites and the Canaanites and the valleys. But they wouldn't obey, and they wouldn't believe. So God told Moses, don't go up there because I won't be with you. Don't try to invade the land because I won't be with you. Turn south, go back into the wilderness, go back towards the Red Sea, even though that certainly is discouraging for you, Moses, and Aaron, and Miriam, and Joshua, and Caleb. But turn south. 
and go back into the barren wilderness. They couldn't even stay at Kadesh Barnea with its flowing waters. They had to go back into the wilderness. Well, let me read the next section here. We won't get much chance to look at it, but verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which they are making against me. Say to them, As I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses shall fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land in which I swore to settle you, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Your children, however, whom you said would become a prey, I will bring them in, and they shall know the land which you have rejected. But as for you, your corpses shall fall in this wilderness, and your sons shall be shepherds for forty years in the wilderness, and they shall suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. According to the number of days which you spied out the land, forty days, for every day you shall bear your guilt a year, even forty years, and you shall know my opposition. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall be destroyed, and there they shall die. As the scripture says, it's a fearsome thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Scripture tells us that our God is a consuming fire. And I can't think of more frightening words than where the end of verse 34 where God says, And you shall know my opposition. The opposition of the world we can handle in God's strength. The opposition of Satan we can handle in God's strength. But what will enable us to handle the opposition of God? Nothing. So it was a very fearful thing for Israel. But as we study that particular passage and, and look on what, what follows, uh, we discover that God is faithful even in all of this to raise up that next generation. Now that does not mean that there weren't some who were 19, 18, 17, 16, 15 who wouldn't, didn't also doubt. But God drew the line at 20 years of age and older because that was the responsible generation in God's in, in Israel's way of doing things. That was the responsible generation. And so God said, I'm wiping them all out and going to start with this next one. You, you thought they were all going to die. You don't want to go in the land because, oh, my children and my wives, my wife will all, will all be killed by the Amalekites. How can God do this to us? And God is saying, they're the ones that are going to take the land because you're a bunch of chickens, in effect. And that's, of course, exactly what happened. Well, we'll look more at that next week.